Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. The book of Revelation, remember, is written by John, but it's a series of visions that are given to him, which he then records what he saw. And here in chapters 2 and 3, we have the letters to the seven churches. And Jesus has a message for each of these churches, and they're real historical churches that were in these seven cities when John wrote the book. And each message is unique to that church. The message builds on things from the Old Testament. It builds on things from the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. But it also builds on things from the geography and culture of the city that each church is in. And this morning we look at the final letter, the letter to the church in Laodicea. So Revelation chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 14. Follow along as I read. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Well, again, this morning, we're going to begin with a little tour of the city that we're talking about. And unlike last week, there's actually plenty for us to see about Laodicea. So if you look on the map to see where we are, we've come all the way around to the last church here. We've followed this Roman postal route road, and we are at the seventh church, Laodicea. And remember, these are real historical churches in Asia Minor. The city of Laodicea was located in the Lycus Valley. It's close to two other cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. Colossae is a bit to the southeast there, Hierapolis north and a little bit east of Laodicea. You're probably familiar with Colossae because Paul writes a letter that we call Colossians, a letter to the church in the city of Colossae. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed as you've read the letter to the Colossians, but these other two cities are mentioned in the letter. So in Colossians 2.1, Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. And then in chapter 4 of Colossians, he writes about his co-worker named Epaphras, and he says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. A lot of people think that Epaphras is actually the founding pastor of the church in Laodicea. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. 
Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there was a letter written by Paul to Laodicea. We don't have that letter. That's not part of scripture. But Colossae and Laodicea, they were supposed to be, you know, swapping letters so that they all got the same messages there. And it's natural that Paul thinks of these three cities together because they're so close. And you're going to see as we go through the message this morning that Jesus has for Laodicea that there is a reason that he gives the descriptions that he does. It connects all three of these cities. Let me show you a little bit about the city of Laodicea. This is the Ephesus gate, obviously just the top of it. It's kind of been, you know, as, as ground has shifted, it's been filled in. But this was one of many kind of impressive entrances to this city. The main street through Laodicea is known as Syria Street. Underneath the street, there's a sewer that disposed of wastewater. And this is a colonnaded road. You see the pillars there. Would have had lots of shops along the sides. And then behind the shops would be homes. This temple is known as Temple A, real creative title for it. It was probably built in the century after John wrote Revelation. It was originally dedicated to the gods Apollo, Artemis, and Aphrodite. And then later on, it was rededicated as a temple to the emperor. So this is part of the emperor worship. This is one of four different baths structures, public baths in Laodicea. <clears throat> this area is a nymphium, which is a fountain, a public fountain area. Here's a little closer look. Laodicea had five large public fountains like this. This is the stadium outside the city. You can see the oval there on the left-hand side, and that's uh, the largest one in the region. This is where the games would take place, chariot races, horse races. This is no podunk little town. This is a thriving city. I know I always catch myself reading these letters, picturing a small little village. This is a major city. <clears throat> Laodicea even had a jockey club. This is where the jockey club building was in the city of Laodicea. And this is the clubhouse of the Greens. It was a chariot racing club. So obviously it's a pretty um, wealthy, significant city if they have buildings set aside for a jockey club and a chariot racing club. This is one of the agora or marketplaces in the city. There were five shopping areas like this in Laodicea. The wealth of this city came largely from trade because this sits on several different trade routes. So Laodicea became a banking and financial center as well. Here's another agora. Textiles or fabrics was a large source of wealth. They were known worldwide for this. The emperor Diocletian in 301 AD put out a price edict for the empire and in that it, inc it includes listings for Laodicea fabrics and all the way across the Mediterranean the other end of it in France in the city of Lyon there's a grave found with an inscription on it that reads the merchant who sold Laodicea fabrics here lies Julius Vericundus so they were going all over the known world this is the entrance to a house. Houses in Laodicea, because of the wealth of the city, were larger than normal. Typical house in Laodicea was several thousand square feet. 
Here's another house. This house had sitting rooms and storage areas and pools. You can see in this kind of aerial shot of Laodicea that the city had two theaters, one on the west and one on the north. So this is the west one. The one on the bottom left corner there is the north. Both of them sit and overlook the Lycus Valley. So Laodicea kind of sits up on a plateau overlooking the Lycus Valley. And this northern theater has inscriptions on the seats that let us know that there were reserved seating areas for people from different cities in the region, including Hierapolis and Colossae. But there were also uh, even closer, better seats reserved for the trade guilds in the city. So if you were part of a particular trade guild, then you had a reserved seating area in the theater. And those trade guilds were the most important social divisions in these ancient cities. This is a church that has been excavated in Laodicea. This comes from a time period a little bit after John's time, but it gives you an idea of how the church is um, developed to be. And in this church is a baptistry. And as a good immersionist, I have to point out that to be baptized here, you would walk down into the water, okay, and be immersed in the water, typical uh, practice that develops right out of what the Jews did with their mikvahs. There are at least 20 different churches or chapels that have been found in Laodicea. One that was just found a little over a year ago is a house church. Here's a picture of the house. And this is a massive house. It was located right next to that northern theater. So sitting, you know, the theater kind of is on the edge, right up at the top is where this house sits. The house is over 21,000 square feet. And part of the house was converted into a church. And that conversion happened after John's time, but this house was there when John wrote the letter to the Laodiceans. So for instance, when, when I read the verses from Colossians and John, or Paul says, you know, greet Nympha and the church that meets in her house. That's an example of how this kind of thing would work. You had very wealthy individuals who opened their homes for the church to meet. I'm going to show you a few more things, but it's kind of integrated into the, the message of the letter. So we're going to continue on. And, and the, the way I want to frame this letter this morning is overcoming through dependence. Jesus is emphasizing in this letter the fact that his church should be dependent on him. Dependent on him. And so there's four parts to that. The first one, dependence and usefulness. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. The last three will go a lot faster, but this is where I want to spend the majority of the time. This is the main message of this letter. Jesus says that this church is lukewarm. He would rather they were hot or cold. But because they're lukewarm, he will vomit them out of his mouth. And that's what the word literally is. It's vomit. It's not spit. Spit is kind of a toned down version of it. It's a violent negative reaction that Jesus has to this church. And often you'll hear someone say that this means while they're spiritually lukewarm and Jesus would rather that they're spiritually hot or spiritually cold, one or the other. But that's not quite what this is saying. Jesus doesn't want people to be spiritually cold. The word picture that Jesus is using is drawn from the geography around Laodicea. So remember, Laodicea sits in the Lycus Valley. 
nearby Colossae and Hierapolis. Just to give you a little feel, Colossae is about 11 miles away and Hierapolis is about six miles away from Laodicea. There's not much to see at the site of Colossae. It really hasn't been excavated, but we do know that the city of Colossae had fresh mountain streams running down to it. So it had a constant supply of refreshing cold water. The city of Hierapolis, the other city in the valley, has some very interesting remains, and I'm just gonna pick two things to share with you this morning. First, there's an area outside the city of Hierapolis that was known as the Gates of Hell. It's a temple to the god Pluto, or Hades, the ruler of the underworld. Now, if you look at the, the, the rectangular area there in the foreground of that picture, down inside that pit is an arched doorway. You can see that there's water kind of filling that area. It wouldn't have been quite like that uh, back in the day when John wrote this letter to Laodicea. But this is an artist rendering of what that area may have looked like back in that day. The priests of this temple would take animals or birds, whatever was being offered, and they would go down underground here. And the noxious, toxic fumes that were coming up from underground would kill the animals. And we assume the priests had developed the ability to hold their breath for long periods of time as they went down there and took these animals down. Two tourists actually died going down there in recent years, and so that area is now kind of off limits to visitors. But there are a couple of guardian statues that have been found near this area as well. The one on the right here, the coiled serpent, is a symbol of the underworld. And the one on the left, though the heads have been knocked off of it, that is Cerberus, the three-headed dog that guards the entrance to Hades. And both of those were guarding this temple to Pluto and the gates of hell, so to speak. And I bring that up as a side note this morning to make this point. Jesus tells the church that as he sends them out into the world, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, this is not the only place where there was a, a pit like this called the gates of hell. There were other places in the ancient world that were similar, even in Israel. So it's not particularly this one that Jesus has in mind necessarily. But his message is that every place on earth comes under his dominion, even the gates of hell itself. We, the church, are to bring God's rule to bear on every area of life. And the gates, notice, are stationary, right? That's not going anywhere. They're not moving. That means it's the church that's on the move. The church is taking back territory. The church is on the offensive. The church is advancing and the kingdom is growing, and nothing is off limits to the kingship of Jesus in this world. The second thing that I want to note in Hierapolis this morning is their hot springs. When our family went out west this last summer, one of the places we visited was Mammoth Hot Springs. So that's what that's a picture of that we took in Yellowstone National Park. And Yellowstone is full of hot springs around like you know areas like this. This is obviously the biggest one that has these mineral deposits um, that have built up over time. And those mineral deposits are big enough 
that you can even see it from a distance. So this is a picture from a couple miles away that we took out the car window, but that white area that you see in the center, that's Mammoth Hot Springs that you're seeing there in the distance, okay? The city of Hierapolis was known for their hot springs. Okay, what you're looking at is not a ski area, it's an area called the Cotton Castle because of the mineral deposits that have been built up there. So there's hot springs up on the plateau here above where Hierapolis was, and then as the water flows over the edge, it leaves these mineral deposits. And so people came to Hierapolis because the natural hot springs were thought to have healing properties. Going to Hierapolis was going to the spa. You can still go and visit. I mean, these pools, you're allowed to walk in them today. You know, so people still go and visit these, these places today. And this area, as you look at it, you can see it overlooks the Lycus Valley. And as you look out across the valley, you could see Laodicea and maybe on a clear day, Colossae as well. So if we were to go from Hierapolis across the valley, back to Laodicea where this letter is written to and look back, here's what we would see. So here's the ruins of Laodicea and in the distance you see Hierapolis, six miles away. I, I bring that up to say, when Jesus writes about hot and cold and lukewarm, this is a very easy to understand illustration for people living in Laodicea because Laodicea got its water piped in from Colossae and Hierapolis by aqueduct. It was a, you know, a Roman kind of standby of how to move water around. And by the time the hot springs water from Hierapolis got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm and putrid because of the mineral content. And the water that was piped in from Colossae was better, but by the time it traveled 11 miles to get to Laodicea, it too was lukewarm, not refreshing. In fact, the Romans engineered special pipes with vents that could be accessed in order to clean out the mineral deposits because it was such an issue in these pipes. You can still see, though, the buildup on these pipes near Laodicea. Well, the pipes came to a water tower. This is the remains of the water tower in Laodicea. You can see a kind of a bunch of pipes coming off of it. And the pipes then led to various homes and businesses in the city. And since the city didn't have a water source of its own, this source had to be protected. Shortly after John wrote Revelation, there's an inscription that um, was found that describes a law that was passed in Laodicea fining anyone who disturbed the water supply, whether they were polluting it or damaging the pipes or even opening the access vents when they had been sealed. And the fine would be the equivalent today of between forty dollars and $50,000. That's the importance that they placed on having the water. Now, as you think about this, it's kind of convenient in the English language because the first letter of each city helps you to remember this. Hierapolis, hot. Colossi cold, Laodicea lukewarm. The hot water in Hierapolis was very useful and desirable. It accomplished something helpful. The cold water in Colossi was very useful and desirable. It too accomplished something helpful. The lukewarm water in Laodicea was useless. It was not helpful. Yes, 
hold your nose and drink it because you need water to live. But other than that, you didn't want it. And Jesus says that the Laodicean church is like that. Useless, undesirable to him, made him want to vomit. And the question is, why? The simple answer is that they were arrogant. They were self-sufficient. They were smug. They didn't think they needed anyone. They could do it themselves. This city was the most wealthy city in the region. They were a financial center, a banking center, and that was a fairly recent development in John's day. Earlier in the century, around AD 25, Laodicea had requested permission to build a temple to the emperor, to honor the emperor. And they were officially turned down because the city was not sufficiently wealthy enough. Well, 35 years later, in AD 60, Laodicea had pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. In fact, an earthquake in that year devastated the region and Rome sent money to all the cities in the region to help them rebuild. Unlike the rest of the cities, Laodicea refused the funds. No thanks. We'll do it ourselves. We'll pick ourselves up without any help. We don't need anyone. And that attitude carried over into the church of Laodicea. John is writing just a few years after that. But God assesses this church quite differently than they assess themselves. He says they're wretched and pitiable. Wretched means they're constantly undergoing toil and trouble. And because of this condition, they're pitiable, sorry, sad. Now that's not how the Laodiceans thought of themselves. They think they're at the top of the pile. They're strong and exalted, independent, not needy like the others. Jesus further explains their condition then with three important descriptions. They are poor, blind, and naked. And each of these descriptions is drawn from the reputation of Laodicea. They're a wealthy financial and banking center. And Jesus says that in his eyes, they're poor. Laodicea was known for its medical center, particularly specializing in ophthalmology, dealing with eyes. And Jesus says that they're blind. Laodicea was known for this high-grade black wool product from the sheep that they raised. And Jesus says that they're naked. This self-sufficient, arrogant church that thinks so highly of itself is the only church out of the seven that receives no commendation from Jesus. He doesn't have anything good to say about them. They have plenty good to say about themselves, but in Jesus' estimation, they're poor, blind, and naked. Now, having said all that, Jesus isn't completely done with them. He gives them correction. There is something they can do. They can repent. And here's what he says they need to do. They need to buy three things. Refined gold, white garments, and eye salve. 
Refined gold means gold that is melted down to have the impurities removed from it. What are the impurities as Jesus looks at this church in Laodicea? Well, it's their syncretism, like we've seen in some of these other churches. They've mixed the works of God with the works of the world. They're not pure. They're not holy. As in some of these other churches, some of the believers in Laodicea thought that they could follow Jesus and still participate in the temple idol feasts. After all, they're not real gods. We know that. And if I don't participate, then I won't be able to do business in the city. The trade guild won't support me. My bottom line will suffer. And Jesus says their works need to be refined gold, pure. And if they do this, Jesus says they'll be rich according to his measurement. He's talking about being loyal to him, exclusively loyal to him. The beginning of this letter, Jesus introduces himself as the amen, the true and faithful witness. He's the one whose evaluation of them is perfectly accurate and true. And he's perfectly genuine. The question is, are they? Are they faithful and true? And the answer is no, they're not. They're splitting their loyalties. They have divided loyalties because they're participating in the local trade guild temple idol feasts. The second thing Jesus says is that they should buy garments that are white. But Laodicea was known for its black wool and the very soft fabric that was made from it. The Roman historian Strabo wrote, the country around Laodicea produces sheep remarkable not only for the softness of their wool, in which they surpassed even that of Miletus, but also for its raven black color, and they get splendid revenue from it. But in biblical symbolism, generally, white signifies purity or holiness, and black signifies evil or defilement. Jesus says they need different clothes. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned, when they did evil deeds, they sensed their shame, and they covered that shame with fig leaves. But the fig leaves were not a sufficient covering. God said they needed different clothes. And God provided them with animal skins, animals whose blood was shed to show the significance of this need. And those skins pointed forward to the righteousness of Christ that would ultimately be the covering that we need. Christians are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Our works are not perfect, not always holy, but we should be increasing in holiness. And Jesus' description here of buying white garments from him tells the Laodiceans that holiness is what they need. No more worldliness. And the third thing that Jesus says they should buy from him is eye salve. Now, when we looked at the letter to Pergamum, if you remember, they had a very famous healing center. You remember the Asclepian with all the snakes and all of that? Well, Laodicea also had a healing center, a medical center with a school. But it wasn't as famous as Pergamum. The center at Laodicea, though, specialized in eyes. So if you needed something else, you might go to Pergamum. If it was a serious thing, you might travel that far. But if your eyes were what needed attention, Laodicea was to eyes what the Cleveland Clinic is to hearts. The ancient physician Galen wrote in his work called Hygiene, 
and the eyes you will strengthen by using the dry powder made of Phrygian stone, applying the mixture to the eyelids without touching the membrane of the eye inside. What he's talking about is the eye salve that Laodicea was known for. That Phrygian powder, Phrygia is the area, the region in which these cities sit. And a standard textbook on eye care in those days was written by Demosthenes Philalethes. He was trained at the medical school in Laodicea. His textbook was still in use in the Middle Ages. It was called Ophthalmicus. So the church in Laodicea is very aware of what Jesus is saying here. They understand the illustrations that Jesus is using. And Jesus' point is, you're blind. You're not seeing rightly. You're looking at the world and you don't see it the way I do. You're looking at these false idols and these temple feasts and you think it's no big deal. You think a little bit of syncretism is okay. That's not how I see it, Jesus is saying. And you need to see like I see. You need to view the world the way I do. So refined gold, white garments, and eye salve. But did you notice how they're supposed to get these things? First of all, they're supposed to buy them from Jesus. So Jesus is the source of what they need, not the world. They need to come to Jesus. You want to be holy? Come to Jesus. You want not to be tainted by the world? Come to Jesus. You want to see the world rightly? Come to Jesus. But Jesus also says they're supposed to buy these things from him. And he says they're poor. They should buy from him, but they can't buy from him. You see what Jesus is saying? They are completely dependent on him. They don't have what they need, and they don't have the means to get what they need apart from him. Isaiah says something like this in Isaiah chapter 55. Go ahead and turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 55. We've talked about Isaiah a little bit recently. You remember that it's in three parts, before exile, during exile, after exile. The whole thing is written all at the same time, before exile, but it's divided into three parts because it's three kind of separate messages for Israel at these different times in their history. This passage is at the very end of the second part, while they're in exile, but just before they return. So this is part of the message that's telling them that because of their sin, they're in exile, because they've run after idols, because they've mixed the worship of God with the worship of idols, a lot like what's going on in Laodicea and some of these other cities. But God is now inviting them to return to him, to repent of their sin. So let's start at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So God invites them here to get what they really need, and there's no cost to them. Come buy it without money, without price. Now, it's a costly thing, but there's no cost to them. 
Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So they've been spending their resources for other things, things that don't satisfy. But God's word gives them what they truly need. Jump down to verse 6. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So this is an invitation to repent, to turn away from sin. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, be zealous and repent. Now look at verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are higher. You can't use human reason and arrive at a right understanding without also being informed by God through his word. So the Laodiceans need God's ISAV to open their eyes so that they can see the way that he sees. So Jesus says to this church in Laodicea, come, buy these things from me. Yes, you're poor. Yes, you're utterly dependent on me. Give up on your self-sufficiency. Quit trying to find what you need elsewhere. Stop trying to ride the fence between the world and me. Let's come back now to Revelation 3 and to Laodicea. These other three aspects of dependence that I want to talk about this morning will be much more brief. And the first one, so the second one in our list, is dependence and obedience. Jesus says to this church in Laodicea in verse 19, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. And there's two things in this verse that we need to notice. First of all, the need for repentance. Repentance means doing a 180. It means that you were going one way, you do a U-turn, and you head the other direction. They need to stop doing the tainted works they were doing and instead do new works, pure works, works that flow from God's word. And the second thing we need to note here is that there's a need to receive discipline. Jesus says that discipline is a sign of love. He disciplines his people because he loves them. Like a parent disciplines a child, not because they like being mean, but because they know that for this child's good, they need a spanking. There's lots of places in scripture we could go to see this. Let me just give you a couple. Proverbs chapter 23, 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul. Loving parents discipline their children. And Jesus disciplines his people. That's why we're encouraged to receive discipline properly. Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. 
not only is it important that, that Jesus disciplines, it's important how you receive the discipline. And it really is for the best. The author of Hebrews, after talking about receiving discipline, reminds us that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. The church in Laodicea needs to exhibit new works, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, refined gold, white garments. The third thing about dependence that I want us to see is dependence and fellowship. Dependence is related to fellowship. In verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, I'm sure you've heard people use this verse to talk about evangelism, as if God is knocking at the door of the unbeliever's heart. He wants to come in, but the unbeliever won't let him. That's not what this verse means. Jesus is knocking at the door of the church. This church in Laodicea has, in their arrogance and self-sufficiency, effectively closed the door on Jesus. He's on the outside. They're not in fellowship with him. They don't need him. They think they're rich. They think they have what they need. But Jesus tells them that by living this way, they've actually shut him out. His invitation is that if they open the door, if they recognize their dependence, if they repent of their arrogance, if they come to buy from him what only he can give, he will come in and eat with them. He'll fellowship with them. We should probably read this as a contrast to the temple idol feasts. As long as this church sits down in a pagan temple to eat their meals, as long as they participate with the trade guild, as long as they are riding the fence between Jesus and the world, so to speak, Jesus can't sit down with them. Jesus isn't going to sit down at that table. They've walked away from the table of fellowship with Jesus and they're fellowshipping with pagan gods. But if they repent, they'll have a much better feast, a fellowship meal with Jesus. So the thing to realize here is that fellowship with Jesus only happens when we admit our need. When we recognize our dependence. When we turn to Jesus for what only he can give. And finally, dependence on Jesus is connected to the idea of rule. Ruling with Jesus. Jesus says to this church... The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The beginning of the letter here, Jesus is introduced from chapter one, that phrase, he's the beginning of God's creation. He's the arche, the, the one who is over all. Jesus has conquered. He's, he's conquered, he's completed the mission that the Father gave him. And now he is risen and ascended and he has sat down with his Father on the throne. They are ruling now. Jesus is on the throne. The idea of shared rule was not uncommon in the ancient world. Here's a coin that shows Caesar Augustus and Marcus Aurelius sharing a throne. 
ruling together. This kind of throne is called a bicellium, a double throne. And that's probably behind Jesus sitting down at the right hand of God the Father as together they rule. And now, Jesus says, we share in that rule too. If we are in Christ, if we conquer, if we're dependent on him and therefore we're in fellowship with him, then we too are ruling with him. I won't take time to read you all the verses, but let me just kind of give you a list of things that scripture teaches us about this. Christ has already inaugurated the kingdom, Colossians 1. He has disarmed the spiritual forces against him, Colossians 2. He's made us kings and priests, Revelation 1, and we are called to conquer as he has conquered here in this letter, Revelation 3. Jesus is already reigning right now, Acts 2. He's over all of creation, Ephesians 1. He has all power and authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28. He is now putting all of his enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15. We were created in his image. We were given dominion ourselves, Genesis 1, and we are now being conformed to his image, Romans 8. And so he has given us all things, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 3. So we are with him to be exercising dominion now. We're ruling and reigning with him now. So you and I, in whatever arena God has placed us, are to be exercising his dominion in that place. Are you a husband and father? Then exercise dominion in your family to shape it to be more aligned with Christ's kingdom. Are you a wife and mother? Then exercise dominion in your family to bring it to be more like God's design. Are you an employer or an employee? Then exercise dominion over the sphere of responsibility that God has given you to bring that work more into agreement with God's kingdom. Are you a student? Then work to have dominion over your own study habits and performance. Learn and study, not by simply accepting what you're told, but measuring it against the word of God so that you're seeing the way that he sees. And use what you're learning to prepare so that you're ready to go out and have dominion in whatever arena God sends you into. Jesus says that all authority has been given to him and he's putting his enemies under his feet. He's bringing things in subjection to his rule. All authority has been given to him, and then he sends us out as his ambassadors. That means that every area of life is to be brought under his dominion. Politics, law, the home, telecommunications, the environment, utilities, economics, education, all of it is to be lived out according to his laws. And you and I are to take the lead in that. That's what it means to rule with him, to exercise his dominion in the world all the way to the very gates of hell. This church in Laodicea was disgusting in Jesus' eyes. He wanted to vomit them out. Why? Because they were arrogant and self-sufficient. They weren't dependent on him, and therefore they were useless. 
Do you want Jesus to see you as useless? I hope not. So let's take the prescription that Jesus gives in this letter. Let's understand our dependence on him. Embrace that dependence. If we are ever to be holy, we must see our dependence on him. And we must also be obedient to him. We must repent of our sin. Submit to his word. We must be obedient and receive his discipline. And we must also seek fellowship with him. That means we're not seeking fellowship with the world. We're not trying to keep one foot in the world and one in Jesus' kingdom. Rather, we're 100% loyal to his kingdom. All in. And then as his representatives, ruling with him, we seek to see that kingdom grow, to expand it throughout every area of life because it all belongs to Jesus. Let's pray together that God would cement these things in our hearts. Lord, as we consider this letter to Laodicea, I pray that you would help us to see our dependence on you. We don't want to be independent people like this church in Laodicea. And growing up in America, living here as we do, we have for a very long time had this temptation to see ourselves as self-sufficient. We have what we need. But I pray that you'd help us to see how desperately we need you, that we would be dependent on you, that we would receive your discipline and that we would have fellowship with you true fellowship because our loyalties are not divided. Would you purge from our minds and hearts the desire to be accepted by the world? And would you give us whole hearts, eyes that see the way that you do, and a desire to live a holy life, white garments and refined gold. Enable us to be loyal to you, dependent on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.